Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Design Exec Club Spotlight here. I'm with Betsy Sweat. Hello, Betsy. How are you? Mark, doing well. How are you? Uh, look, I'm well, but I'm uh, able to look out my window and do stuff. I think you're in hotel quarantine at the moment. I'm in hotel quarantine in Bangkok. It's actually been an incredible experience. Service is amazing. Dark outside, though. That's okay. So um, uh, how far are you through your quarantine? How Are you past the hump? Are you on the downhill? I'm past the hump. I've gotten my second negative COVID. And so a whole world is opened up within the resort. Mm-hmm. So I'm four days away from being released. Fantastic. But it's all good. It's all really good. So we're not here to go talk about hotel quarantine. We're here to go talk about a better future. And in particular, your world with restoration hardware is about mm-hmm is about the internal spaces and external rooms that people have in their homes, offices, and also in resorts. So there's a lot of impact on the environment there. You're making nice environments, but that's sourced out of the environment. And there's a conversation we can have about the better future, sustainable environment. But there's also aspects in this to do with social equity. And there's also about the strong economic factors. So I want to go into the strong economic factors first, because the restoration hardware story is phenomenal. If I go look at a stock chart five years ago, I see that it was down around about the $20, $30 mark. Mm-hmm. And then it's just gone up and up and up. And I think it's about $490 at the moment. So it's performing. The market likes it. It's uh, obviously made some propositions to the market that they've said, we well, need some more capital. That's why you raise money. That's why people turn around and actually hold the stock high. So tick, that's that on that front, it's a it's a darling story. Okay. Right. We often don't see that in, in the design sector, that there's people who have that sort of growth. I think the only people that are in a similar cohort are Logitech, um, that we've seen Brack and Daryl's leadership has got them about a, in five, six years, an eightfold increase, but you're up above uh, tenfold. So incredible work by the leadership of the company. Mm-hmm. Let's go into, because into, there's like four things I want to go and talk about. One is actually about the sourcing of materials that are in here. I also want to look at the longevity of the products and what does that mean from a sustainable future, the diversity in your workforce, and then also the craftsmanship. So, viewers, just to help you out with get the picture about restoration hardware, started in the 70s, and the founder actually, well, he went to seek some really good hardware for uh, for interiors and he didn't find it. So, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting thing. If I can't find what I'm looking for, do I then start to work out how to source it? But because of the values that came about diversity, that came about excellence in craftsmanship, um, sustainability, that's now permeated through the company and we're seeing the results of that. So, so that helps to give us some framing. Betsy, have I got that framing right? Is that, Or is there some correction you'd like to... No, help? no, no. Actually, it's uh, what we've always seen within RH, and it was rebranded over a decade ago as RH, um, is that it's always been top-down. It's been about in the leadership instilling at, at the very top, at the chairman, instilling this feeling that, God, life can be beautiful. We are a lifestyle experiential business, and that's why we're different. That's why we're seen differently than other furniture manufacturers and other lighting manufacturers. So I think what you talk about having this tenfold increase over a very short period of time in the stock, the financial community does like what we're doing. And it's in it's those pillars of being a responsible neighbor, about being a manufacturer of quality goods. It's about taking design and taking retail 
to the next level. And you and I, Mark, have talked a little bit about what's happened in the box stores. People are going digital. Box stores are shutting down, whereas RH is going bigger and expanding internationally. So we're now almost 90 galleries. And while people are looking at are taking the RH experience to the new level within our own company, the financial community has certainly responded to that as well. And I want to I want to have a little look at the at the difference in the retail experience or the customer touch point that's there. Something that's an evident trend is that extraction based uh, industries are actually on the wane. It's the additive additive industries that are on the on on the on the rise. And what's interesting, the idea of going for the gallery concept, which is it's an immersive experience. It, it In many ways, it overwhelms you, but then it's also got service providers who are attached and can help you to understand how to get even more out of the base furniture that's there into a complete, into a complete design. Mm-hmm. It's about plus 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 and and that's and that's what abundance is about so it's a, you've got these beautiful pieces they're joyful it's a joyful environment to be in but it's actually talking about not how do we just do the exchange of dollars but also how do we actually help you get the experience and the outcome better than you could imagine and i and i look at that and i go magic formula there because it's if i go think of many other furniture providers what they're doing is it's just we've got it on display bargain me down on price and we'll change some dollars and you go to go to the side door, the loading dock, or we'll deliver it to you. And you, and you go to, so it was a very transactional and there wasn't a lot of value, addition, additional value that was created there. So I think that's why you're seeing the response there. And, that, and that's really interesting from thinking about the future of retail, which is how do you make the retail experience additive rather than extraction? And, and and so one is a design creative mind thinking, the other one is very much an accounting economics thing. Thinking and uh, so you're on the front foot there, but these galleries that you've been doing, uh, you're expanding them, and I think has COVID interrupted the plans in uh, in uh, the UK? The COVID has interrupted the plans. In fact, we're talking about 2022, 23, and 24 in terms of the galleries that we're opening now, um, and mainly because we're looking at buildings that are pretty extraordinary. A lot of them are heritage. We want to do it right. We want to make sure that what we're where we're opening is the same feeling that you get when you're in North America right now. Um, so yes, has interrupted the plan, but um, I think in a good way, it's allowed us to step back and say, how are people looking differently at their own homes? How are they looking differently at the investments developers are making in multi-residential communities or, or hotels or office spaces? Um, and how do we show that within the gallery setting Mm-hmm. to allow us to to be even that one step further um, better than what others are doing. Yeah. And I think if I recall back into one of the town halls that we went and did, you shared with us that uh, that although the commercial interior space had had, a, say, a bit of a handbrake put on it because of COVID, that it was the domestic dwelling that went through the roof and it was the uh, people who were stuck in their own cave and they wanted to go make the cave a little bit nicer. And, and that's interesting. You've got both of those plays there. And there's probably some very different considerations in longevity of the product living in those spaces or are you finding that people's imagination is it will be in my home as long as it would be in the foyer of my hotel? Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, um, you, you mentioned the word immersion earlier. And, and I think 
that's probably what a homeowner is feeling when they walk into an RH gallery. They're feeling this overwhelming sense of, I could live like this. I can see myself living in these different environments. I can help collaboratively with the gallery people identify those pieces that will help me feel like I can live with these things for decades and I can adopt them within my own home. But you're right. It's, um, it's a place where we all lived for the better part of last year in our own home saying, I can't look at that anymore. And it was from a single piece to, I recognize now that my bubble is my family and my friends and my environment. And I want to make that the most beautiful place, the most productive place I can be. And so that, that has changed the way we've looked at how we do business with our clients. So to help people so we don't have to go over the old territory, I'll put a link up to the show that we did uh, called Not Milano. We did, we, no, viewers, we went and did a show last year, which was we called it Not Milano, and I got Betsy. I also got Will Knight, uh, former director of Dubai Design Week, London Design Festival. Uh, what else have we got in there? 100% Design, Clarkham. So really good minds in there. And we also had Catherine Shaw, the, um, the design writer, uh, Metropolis magazine, Wallpaper magazine. And, and she joined us. Okay. And there was this moment, so I'm going to put in there so that you can find out about the plans that Restoration Hardware had before some of those interruptions, which are on the public record, but it gives you some more detail. But Catherine actually got in and she talked about one of the chairs that she, so this okay. is a, uh, and she's not a particularly cynical person, but let's say she's seen a lot, okay? And, and yet she goes into a Restoration Hardware showroom and she starts working out what furniture can she dump so that she can put this piece in her house. So, and, and, and you go, it's very interesting because it's kind of an unguarded moment where she's giving up. I fell in love with uh, with a chair, which uh, which uh, I think might be one of those things you're not meant to do in her role. So you've got people who are actually sourcing for I need a hundred of these, but you've also got people who are sourcing I need two or three pieces. Okay. That's a very complex business to go run. How do you actually, how do you run it? Is there a difference between the contract side of the business and the gallery business, or are they all integrated into the, into the one operating model? Yeah, no, it's, and it's a great observation. Um, it's a very emotional purchase when you're buying for your own home. In some cases, it's a step up. You're a, um, you're at a point in your career where maybe you're, it's your first great piece that you're buying. Mm -hmm. um, and we have actually started adding some additional pieces to the business where we're moving up that food chain to extraordinary bespoke pieces to um, even very contemporary, much more contemporary pieces than we, we currently are offering. But, you know, Catherine at that point in her career as well, having seen so many things, surprised herself. And when she fell in love with something and she literally sent a, a picture and said, I cannot get my husband out of this chair. And I'm looking at this chair saying, I don't understand why it speaks to me the way it does. It's a very different business when even when you're part of the industry and you see something that just makes you feel a certain way. And that's what homeowners are responding to within the galleries. So how do we marry that feeling when we're dealing with developers and when we are dealing with a group of people who are don't have that emotional tie to their projects. And I think what it is, is developers um, are looking at obviously return of investment. How long am I going to hold on to this property? 
What is going to be the experience that people have? What's my legacy when I leave this property? What's my legacy while I'm operating this property? And we try to really understand the ethos behind the developer. What is that? What does that property mean for that person? What does that property mean for the community? And then try to extract some of that feeling that we have in the galleries and share that with the developer. And I think there's, so I find it interesting uh, when you look at developers who are just in the single transaction flick market are probably going for, um, they're not buying longevity in the items that are in there. They, they're not going to get any more leverage whether they put in something that uh, needs to be replaced in two years or does it need to be replaced in 20 years. They're probably thinking they're over-investing. But if you're in a build-own-operate model, which many, many of your customers are, that they need to turn around and actually think, well, what's the life, What's the lifespan? What's the maintenance cost? How fast are the materials uh, uh, where and whether? Uh, you know, they've got a different consideration set that's in there. But that also, that goes and speaks to a disposable society rather than one that's actually buying for mid and long term. And so it's, it's fortunate that we're seeing that change coming around in that the equity markets know that there's more value in build, own, operate than there is in a single transaction. So tick for the environment for that. But then that also means that there's a different conversation. You must know pretty quickly whether you're talking with somebody who actually has those underlying values, that ethos, as you spoke about, and you probably point them away from the business because they're not going to be a productive customer for you. And it's true. I mean, there are a number of people who will um, are looking at distressed assets even right now. Um, and their idea is I'm going to make it look beautiful. I need it to look beautiful for six months. That's a very different purchasing wow. decision a very different installation decision than it's for someone who is really going to operate this business as something at your flagship, for example. Um, but what's interesting is it had been prior to last year, very formulaic. You talk with the Australia market, people like Star Entertainment Group, and they will say to you, look at where we opened seven years ago. Every seven years, we will, like clockwork, renovate then you have other people who are trying to push it out to 13, sometimes 14 years. And you're trying to marry the craftsmanship with timelessness, but also the experience that a guest is going to have in that property. If you're walking into a property that hasn't been refreshed for 13 years and you're a very loyal client to not only that brand, but also that particular location, you're going to want to see something a little bit different. So how do you do that from an environmental standpoint as a developer or as a company that's supplying where you want it to last and you want it to people to handle your product responsibly um, and to make sure that it's always clean and it's always safe for, for a client to use, but at the same time um, instills that real beauty to what the experience is going to be to a hotel guest, it's a, it's a very difficult formula for a developer to work with. And and it's interesting the idea that, as you were saying, the formulaic approach. Mm -hmm. We know that uh, that there's been a dramatic shift in what's happening in longevity of of branded experiences of hotel experiences. Um, Scott Galloway, who we'll put a link into um, into some of Scott's um, talks. Scott talks about the idea of decades and days, 
And what we've seen with COVID is that our entire decade's worth of growth and also decay has happened in days, being 100 days. And and that's a very interesting point because I see all of the branding agencies that I know, the experience agencies, interior design, architecture, they're all staffing up because people have worked out what we had was a little bit tired when people come back to it, it's going to look extremely tired. And that might be the brand that they're, I know that Burger King has gone through a rebranding process uh, recently. You know, they need to make sure that they're refreshing. Um, we know that there's hotels that are doing it. And and you go, well, yeah, you have to make sure that you're meeting the customer where they are, not where an accountant would like them to be. Exactly. And that's a, that's a, because we're all non-rational human beings. It's not irrational and it's not rational. It's this non-rational space. That's what delight and joy is about. And that, that to me is really interesting about can you actually go do an upgrade and keep some of the, some of the signature pieces that make the hotel or the space feel the same, or do you have to go change all of it? And that's not, a lot of that's going to do with the durability of what you've got there. So I want to dig in there to the craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. Because the craftsmanship, you're not just seeking these products to be made in low-wage economies. You're trying to go find particular finishing crafts that are only available in some corners of the world. And I find that interesting because when I go look at the product range that you've got, there's finishes on there that I rarely see. So so there's, you know, when people are talking about sourcing, there's the accountant's going to come from the lowest cost sourcing, uh, which isn't necessarily in, it's not doing the investment of the best craftsmanship. You're doing both of those things where you're going into some corners of the world to source these products because of the craftsmanship. It's not because it's a, a low cost. Of course, you've got to get your price point right, but that's not the starting point. It's the craftsmanship that's the starting point. Tell me a little bit about that. Right. Well, you know, it's a very good point, Mark, because I think a lot of people look at, for example, Asia in general, but Southeast Asia in particular, and that's where you go to um, to get the lowest cost product and also to get the um, working conditions that allow you to get the kind of volumes. Um, When we went to particular areas of the world to manufacture, we looked at what are the cottage industries that we would like to keep alive, we would like to help keep alive, and how can we invest or even co-invest in some of those manufacturing places? It used to be, uh, for example, a lot of hand-woven rugs would come from China. That doesn't happen anymore. China has moved to a much more industrial nation, and the the cottage industry with people really having that pride of, of sitting down and weaving with your hand doesn't exist anymore. Most of that has now gone to India. But it, in India now, it's become the best that you can get when you look at the products that have been developed over the years. The same with the, the weaving techniques and the places where you can source materials and have the kind of finishes that you want um, are coming from areas that, that we would like to continue to be in the rest of the company life cycle. And um, Indonesia is a great example. They have learned how important it is to protect their environment. So they will only work with companies that will sustainably harvest trees. So when RH went to Indonesia in order to become a sustainable partner within teak wood, um, we would pull a tree, plant a tree, and we're investing in the communities so that 
that life cycle not only is um, is there for the clients that we serve, but also in a country where we want to make sure that that's an industry that can sustain that economy for years to come. Mm. And I, and I think um, I was I was absolutely. Somewhere between devastated and delighted when I went and saw the Rotten series on Netflix, which we'll put a link into if you're so people said, where it talked about some of the insidious parts of even things like cocoa bean, um, the chocolate industry, and how there's a part there's a part of it which is corrupt, is the easiest way to talk about it. And so that's very difficult if you're trying to go into markets where there's both corrupt versions of teak harvesting and there's ethical parts of teak harvesting. Are there certification groups that you go through which have then a reputation and that people know that, yep, that you've got the tick? Or is that something that you have to go self-certify? I know particularly in the, um, in the clothing industry, it's very hard for them to work out what certifications to use. Can you do that with what you're doing? Yeah, in, in fact, it is a great question because I think within North America particularly, it's um, in Europe to a certain extent, there are certifying bodies to make sure that not only products are done well, but they're done very ethically. Um, finishes in, is one of the things that we think very strategically about because we want to make sure that things are applied in a very socially responsible and in very environmental way, um, but then have the longevity in the product. And Green Guard is something that we feel very closely with. So particularly because we sell into the baby and teen category. We want to make sure that things have a life cycle and are applied in a way that um, as it's being used in the home, there's no emission coming from the finishes over a period of time. So the, the guidelines that are very strict in governing that is something that we've adopted, whether we were a publicly traded company or not, it's the right thing to do. Um, in other countries, it's not the case. It's not the case at all. So you really need to make sure that the vendors that you've chosen and the partners that you are with and intend to be with for a very long period of time, um, you audit them to make sure that they're doing the right things at all times where we're not using wrong materials or processes. So um, we watch it very carefully. We've got a group that's very highly respected in Shanghai that goes to the factories unannounced so that we make sure that that what we're seeing is a real portrayal of what they're capable of doing. Yeah, and, and I, you'd mentioned to me that part of your quality control and design for manufacture um, is that you do strip downs on, on some of the uh, products that you've got. And, and that's an interesting idea that you're prepared to go take finished pr produced items and then strip them down to see that they do meet those standards that they, and the standards of what's it, what's been sourced. But also it's important that you can work out the methods that have been utilised to go and actually build it as well because joints in furniture is what it's all about. You know, I've got some lovely furniture that if they had just made the joint a little bit stronger, it would have lasted much longer. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's the important thing there. So... I find this really interesting that you're in a market where there's a lot of people who don't need to have those standards put there. How do you how do you manage to stand out from the crowd without seeming that you're preaching? Because you know you, you, you've got a value stack here which you're saying, okay, well these are the values that we get. It's rather difficult 
to to actually make some of those claims if you even if you've got the certifications without seeming like you're preaching that the others are less than but at the same time you need to make it understood that you're more than exactly exactly and i think one of the questions that our people on the front line ask all the time is what's your investment strategy because we know as you were talking about earlier people who are putting up a property for a hotel and they intend to flip it they're not going to have the same investment strategy as someone who's going to hold on to it for a long period of time. So when we're talking with people so as not to become very preachy about who we are and what our capabilities are, we do talk about how do we ma- absolutely match what your needs are with what we can offer. And we do VE, we do value engineer on own products because you can have a product which is going to last for 20 and 30 years but if you if you don't need solid woods um, and you can have veneers that look absolutely beautiful, that are crafted beautifully, um, that maybe don't take as much of the um, product cost, and you can still make a product that um, that our chairman would be proud to see in a hotel room or in someone's home, then I think that's the magic formula. But it's it's also not about just delivering a product that's crafted beautifully. It's about how do you get it to them? Mm-hmm. If you're in the Maldives, a product coming from one part of the world, which may be a low cost product, is going to take you a lot of money and a lot of logistics to get that product to you in a reasonable amount of time. And I think that's what we try to, to help our customers understand is that it's an end to end solution. The investment strategy is part of it, but when do you need it? And how long is it going to take you to get it there? And then what's the cost involved? And then also what's the what's the footprint that you're going to use in order to get it there? Is it not better to buy something that's locally produced? And if you can, then that whole story becomes much more of a um, environmental and sustainability story together with that beauty and craftsmanship. And for people who are searching for the certifications like LEED and WELL ratings, they need to know what that invested energy is in the parts that are going into the building there. So that's a, that's a very, you know, it's a sophisticated scenario to be operating in. So you, it's exactly the conversation. How much does it take to go get, to go get the elements from one place to another? So... You know, I, I look at the organisation. This is part of the reason why, why I invited you to go have a conversation. You've got this strong economic performance, in fact, stellar economic performance. Yeah. There's sustainability at the, at the core of the organisation, but then there's also this social inclusion, social equity part that comes in. It's uh, the um, using the cottage industries and the craftspeople in, in a, a diverse range of markets. Your workforce is also a very diverse workforce that you've got uh, around the world as well. And there's a mutual respect about the that you're stronger by the unity of having all of those different facets in there. Um, you know, it's a, a fantastic to see the organisation because that's what leadership is about. It's about actually saying we can do it, we can actually get the market to go respect because we added all these things together. We go get a, an equity value that is also adding up. Betsy, I, I think it's been fantastic to go through this, but before we wrap up, there's a couple of things I want to ask you. One is 
Are there some people that you'd recommend viewers should actually go and have a look at their work as exemplars of that better future, that they've got the economics understood, they've got the environment, they've got the diversity? Is there anybody that comes to mind for you? Yeah, that's that's a really tough one. Um, you know, we oh, we tend to you, win you, with. <laughs> you have to choose somebody here. I know, I know. And it's a question without notice, so so we can take a pause there, yeah. um, but we'll let you go have a think. So we'll come back in and so. So I surprised you there, Betsy. That's a question. <laughs> and I've also asked you which one of the which one of the people that actually source from you are, are the better than us. But there's going to be somebody who's like a lightning rod where you say just the things that they're doing is, is fantastic. There, mm-hmm. there might be a couple. Any thoughts? Well, there's. Um, I have to say, when we look at people with whom we're starting to partner, um, some of the companies who have started these organizations grassroots cottage industry kind of thing within their own country um, and then have grown around the world. One of the companies I particularly like is LastFit. LastFit is a Czech Republic company. It is extraordinary um, lighting, um, sculptural. I mean, they have gone from taking something where um, the Czech Republic does the most beautiful glass blowing so it, it's a way that they have kept alive that that feeling that um, families will pass this craft from one to another and to be able to continue to do that. Um, and what we love about what Leon has done for last bit is he continues to look not only inwardly, but outwardly. How do I make that piece beautiful, but also culturally enhance what's being done in Japan? So um, I like what he's doing and I've seen some of the, the new work that he's doing and how he's reaching out to different cultures um, to try to, to make sure that he's moving in the right direction and moving forward, are we? So it's probably a conversation you'd like to have him on one of your shows, Mark. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm sure we would. And I, I used to live in Sweden. I was ma- married to a Swede and I, uh, the part that part of Sweden where her family came from was actually where Costa Boda orifices and, and but we know those names what we don't know are the cottage industries that are around the outside these beautiful glass manufacturers and blowers and that's one of the things that I love is that there's those people who have those specialist skills but it takes somebody to actually work out how to foster that and how to keep that going. So that's great there. We'll definitely put in the link there to, to last. Mm-hmm. Is it last fit or last, how do you say it? Yeah, L- last fit. So it's a V in it, L-A-S-V-I-T. Okay, cool. Okay, all right. So we'll, we'll definitely go there. Okay, so I said there were a couple of things. And the next one is when you imagine grandchildren's grandchildren, you know, we're, we're 50 years or more down, down the road here. How do you think we're actually going to go live our lives? Do you think we're going to actually be trying to go um, be in the current circumstance, which seems this transition from extraction, or do you think we're going to work out how to go make it more, how are we adding to a thriving environment? Um, Even just looking at where we were a year ago versus where we're going now, I think people have become very realistic about what they're willing to do. And so I love travel. I have spent the better part of year getting on a plane for the last decade um, every single week, thinking like that's the only way you can move things forward, not only to, to learn from other cultures, um, to 
see beautiful places and marvel at architecture. But I don't think we're going to do that the way that we did before. We're going to we're going to treat it as something very special. Everything is going to be, I think, what our environment is around us. We're going to create these environments with our friends and our family um, and people that are very special to us. And that's going to be what sustains us. And those things where we go out and learn from other cultures, those are going to be digitally derived as well as passed down from one generation to the next. Um, and I think the, the travel aspect of it for business certainly is going to change. But this idea of connecting to the world around you is going to be a very different thing than what we saw even two years ago. So 50 years out, when I look at talking with my son about what excites you, what brings you joy, I think he's going to have a very different response than I would have had as I was growing up. And I think it's it's about sharing things with the people that you love. Yeah, and I, and I think that sharing is likely to be much more localised. And that hyper-local means that you've then got craftsmanship that's happening, there's more connection to what's going on. And I, I, I know when we started the Driven by Design Award programs, I was trying to understand what the difference between a, a fashion label and a fashion brand was. And, and we worked out that a fashion, a fashion label, you knew that the person whose name was on the label had probably touched the garment that you were holding. And a fashion brand was something that they'd licensed the brand and they'd probably never even seen the design. And, and so we, we know that in the fashion industry, you've got the difference between the brands and labels. I think we're going to see the hyper-local, the artisan, the craftsman is definitely, it was on the rise before COVID. It's going to continue a little bit like that restoration hardware um, share price. Betsy, so thank you so much for your time. It's fantastic to be able to share some of your mind. Mark, I always do with you. And, uh, and good luck on getting through the last days of uh, being in hotel quarantine. Thank you very much. Looking forward to seeing Bangkok in a different way. It's <laughs> going to be a lot of fun. Stay well, stay safe, and uh, keep thinking about a better future. <laughs> see you, Betsy. Bye-bye. Good to see you.